I have a good one. What is a snake's favorite subject? Science. <laughs> That's a good one. This says history. Oh, science makes more sense, but mm. it's fine. <laughs> Hey everybody, and welcome back to our second full episode of Natural Science Daily. This week we sit down with my best friend, Emily Hers as she talks about her life as a wildlife educator and the journey she took to get there. As expected, Emily and I kind of got a little bit off track, so we cover a wide range of topics, which ended up making this episode a little bit longer than I originally planned, so I didn't end up doing a nature fact of the week, but I kind of extended the nature in the news articles just because we kind of touched on two invasive species in the middle of the podcast that I didn't really feel like we gave proper information about so I just really wanted to properly cover that so if you stay at the end of the episode I hope you enjoy that segment as well. With all that being said let's get right into it. I am here with Emily Hers, my absolute best friend and she's also a science educator visiting for my birthday weekend yesterday was my birthday um it will probably be like a week since my birthday once this gets out there but of course because she's visiting i had to make her be on the podcast so emily welcome to natural science daily hey so emily lives in connecticut and is from connecticut so what do you do there i am an environmental educator and i am one of the animal care specialists what, you, what kind of animals do you guys have? Um, we have a variety of different reptiles and small mammals. So you started out in wildlife because your mom is a biologist. Is that true? or? Yes. What does she do? Um, she is a outreach biologist for the state of Connecticut. And she um, works on their website and the Connecticut Wildlife Magazine. Oh, you guys have a Connecticut Wildlife Magazine? Yeah. What's Is it just like what's going on in wildlife? I've never actually read it. <laughs> You should. Yeah, I know. Maine should have a magazine. It's pretty, it's neat. It has some nice pictures. <laughs> Wildlife Society has a magazine, but we're... Oh, I didn't know I, that. Yeah, it's really good. Cool. Um, did you only get into wildlife because your mom was in it, or... I mean, it's what I grew up in. I've mm-hmm. been doing this kind of stuff since I was able to walk and talk. What's the first, like, wildlife experience you can really remember? So I grew up having a box turtle, a corn snake, and then we also had, I believe he was a little brown bat. What? You had a bat? His name was Mr. Bat. He had a broken wing, and my mom used him as sort of like an ambassador animal. So he did programs. You could just like hold him and stuff? No, we didn't hold him. We didn't touch him. But he he crawled around a little enclosure. Huh. We tongue-fed him bugs. What kind of enclosure does a bat need? He was literally in a, like a tank. Oh, I mean, so he wasn't supposed to like survive, oh. but then he did <laughs> for a very long time. Casual, yeah. Do you did you only ever really do things with your mom when you were growing up, or did you know any of the other biologists in Connecticut? Um, so I started banding ospreys in middle school, and that was my first bird banding experience, I believe. Um, wow. Do you then, remember what they were banding ospreys for? I believe we were tracking their populations because at one point we had, I think, only one nesting pair <laughs> in Connecticut. Um, the population has definitely rebounded since, and the project is no longer running. Mm-hmm. But that is what I did in middle school. And then. <laughs> Casual. 
Most kids uh, are playing in sandboxes, and you're like, hey, I'm going to go hold an osprey now. Yeah, it was, it was cool. Um, we would hike through the marshes, and they would put ladders up to the nest and bring the babies down for us to band. And... Did the parents get pretty angry when you were holding the babies? Yep, mom would circle us and scream. <laughs> so lots of fun. Uh, I also did goose banding in middle school, which I hated. I hated it so much. <laughs> but uh, here I am, 23 years old, and... I still go goose banding every year. What's goose banding like? Messy. <laughs> how do you how do you catch a goose to band it? I can't imagine they really. Why don't they just fly away? Um. So when we go to band them, they are molting. Mm-hmm. So they can't fly at this time. So molting just means that they're losing fat, like their flight, yeah. like certain feathers. Yep, they lose their flight feathers. Okay. Um. I believe we do it differently in Connecticut than mm-hmm. they do in Maine. Yeah. I think Maine. Have you gone to goose banding in Maine? Um, I haven't, actually. I know we do, like, roundups. And I know the state does roundups, but I have never been on one. We usually corral them into a fenced-in area. Okay. We bring stakes and some, like, mesh fencing that we mm-hmm. put up. And if they're in the water, we'll go out in kayaks and round them up and get them up onto land. Okay. And then people take birds and we pass them along some people will band if they're already banded that gets recorded in a different notebook mm-hmm. and then once they get their bands they're sent on their way what did you do for your undergrad where did you go to school i went to university of maine psych i already knew the answer to that question but <laughs> same as kelby it's, it's where we met <laughs> um i was a year ahead of her i studied wildlife ecology and then junior year i decided that i was going to minor in education why i wasn't too sure what I wanted to do in the future. I liked being out in the field, but it, it wasn't specifically for me. I didn't want to do research. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the wildlife aspect of things, but being in the field wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. Because so. you'd also been doing it at this point for, like, what, like eight years? Yeah. So most people are just kind of getting into their career in college, and you'd kind of already done all of the tech positions. Yep, so uh, education was more of a, like, it was just kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. Where just another aspect you thought yeah. might be a good addition? Yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I actually uh, I went to Steve, <laughs> one of the professors, and was like, I don't know what to do, and that's what happened. We'll cut that part out, it's fine. <laughs> Why did I pick up education? Oh, that's a whole backstory. Yeah, let's get into the backstory, then. All right, why did I minor in education? So when I was 18... I worked at a nature center at a state park in Connecticut, where it's kind of exactly what I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, we had native animals at the center that we took care of every day, but then we also taught school programs, camp programs, um, public programs, and you know, it was fun because every day I got to take care of the animals, learn their habits, learn their own personalities, and then I would also get to teach. So I taught kids about the Rocky Intertidal Zone, the Sandy Beach, the Salt Marsh, Um, And then I even got to design my own programs Mm -hmm. where I would come up with a lesson, an activity, a craft. And I know that's kind of when I was like, hmm, maybe I could teach kids. Yeah. It was kind of fun because, like, a lot of the kids came from the inner city and most of them had never been to the beach. So it's like you kind of get to have that first experience with them and see their face light up when they find a snail or a crab. Right. Because you never know what's going to spark their interest at that age either. Yeah. So... That's pretty cool. And then after that, I kind of stuck with education. Yeah. That's awesome. uh, all my other positions after that, I was some form of educator. Have you seen 
a change at all? Because I know at school, there's a couple people that also did a minor in education. Um, do you think that's only going to grow as like urbanization happens and kids just aren't exposed to nature as much? I hope so. That's it's important. It is. Um, even now, it's like when I have the kids out, um, a lot of them have never seen a lot of the wildlife and it's like, this is your backyard. Right. You should know what that is. <laughs> like, that was part of the reason we started Wildlife Palooza for the Wildlife Society. Mm. Um, you remember that? Yep. And just, it was just kind of a chance to get the local kids of Orono and Old Town interested. I mean, I have no experience in education whatsoever, <laughs> but I saw it as a way to maybe keep the field growing, because um, aside from kids needing to know what's in their backyard, I, we also need wildlifers in the future. Yeah, it's definitely fun. I know working at one of the summer camps, we would teach kids, like, you know, scientific names for insects, or just different things about wildlife, and then a few weeks later, they could come back, and without even you having to remind them or ask them, they're able to relay that information back to you, and it's, That's awesome. like, pretty cool. I was going for a walk, um, I think it was last Easter, maybe, or the Easter before that, because Brayden was home, and my cousin, Sam and Elena, had one of their sons, and we were going for a walk, and Brayden was, like, quizzing me and all, like, the wildlife and stuff, and he's like, what's that tree? What's that tree? And he was like, how do you actually, like, know? Because we know trees... And he pointed to an American beech tree, and they keep their leaves on in the winter, and it's pretty, it's a pretty easy tree to identify. And he was like, well, what's that tree? And my, like, I think Max, my little cousin, was like three or four, and he goes, I know what tree that is. And Brayden was like, You're, okay, what kind of tree is it? And he's like, that's a beech tree, because Elena makes it a point to, you know, make sure the kids know what's kind of going on in their backyard, which I think is just awesome to see. Yeah, that's always a good thing. So at the Nature Center, you take care of all the animals well not all the animals but any of the animals that we have in our exotic animal building um and then we have a few other places there's another building on site that we have some natives in our mm -hmm. preschool has animals and then we do have an off-site space where we keep some animals as well okay what's it been like to work like very one-on-one -on -one with these animals like is that what you expected when you got hired or did that just kind of happen naturally um it was not what i was originally hired for but then i did um end up getting the animal care specialist position which I split with somebody else and it's a lot of work mm -hmm. there's a lot of animals and every animal is very different even within the same species they have different personalities they have different preferences and you just never know if they're gonna have a good day or a bad day where do you get the animals from that you have a lot of our animals are surrendered pets we try not to go out and just get animals right. um, unless we're looking for a very specific animal but even then we will adopt animals okay. rather than go and like buy them mm -hmm. um, but a lot of them were you know found outside or somebody bought them and then realized oh wow this snake is gonna live for over 20 years maybe I don't want it anymore right which is unfortunate um so, being Emily's best friend, I get some of the Snapchats of, like, the ferrets running around, um, getting socialized, or there was a hedgehog that liked to play with your slipper. Um, what does your normal day look like? It kind of looks like a zoo. <laughs> a little bit. Um, so, in the morning, you know, I go in, I open, I check on every everybody, make sure, you know, they're doing okay, they have everything they need. Um, some days I spend all day doing animal care, which can take me... A few hours there's a lot to get through and of course we also want to provide the animals with a chance to um, have some enrichment and get some like exercise mm -hmm. outside of their enclosures and then occasionally I will go out and teach programs 
My programs aren't always animal-based. Sometimes they're more STEAM-based. So really any of the sciences. What's STEAM-based? So STEAM is the science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Art was recently added in there. Okay. I now have to teach myself art. <laughs> it's not my strong suit. Um, but it's a lot of fun. So I recently taught a forensics class with third to fifth graders, which was a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, but I'll also teach, you know, what animals are doing in the winter. Yeah. Or I can teach maybe about snakes. Kind of just depends. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have very set specific curriculum classes that we teach. But then we also get the opportunity to kind of teach what we're interested in. That's cool. That fits into a topic. So it is a lot of fun. Makes you passionate about it. At least. It does. When you teach, do the people come to the nature center or do you go out to places? Um, they'll come to the nature center and then we'll also go into schools, libraries, um, awesome. or public events. So you work in a city. It's, or at least close to a city. Is it weird when you bring animals into these classrooms where kids their backyard is just another house i mean not really um i feel like i see the same kids a lot so Mm -hmm. they're probably just used to seeing me at this point (laughs) but um you know there are a lot of people and even teachers that are terrified of snakes Mm. um so that's always interesting definitely the mammals go over a little bit better a lot a lot better (laughs) you've worked in just because i've known you for so long in a lot of different places doing education you worked in florida you worked on nantucket you live in connecticut you've probably done some stuff in maine that i don't even know about has there been any like differences among the kids that live in the different areas or are they all pretty much the same when you're teaching a kid there is actually a lot of difference on nantucket the kids were really smart and Mm i believe a lot of those kids had been in camps in the previous years and definitely learned a lot because you know i had five-year-olds who knew the scientific names of insects jesus and they would pull out the words and be like i'm sorry what did you say (laughs) can you repeat that just nod and smile (laughs) yeah kid so i mean they were really smart and it was really cool um and you could definitely tell that like a lot of the parents did look at what we were teaching them and go over it with them again at home that's awesome which was really cool um because then you can like further it and take it another step instead of just like reiterating the same stuff and then down in florida it it was definitely noticeable that you know not everybody gets outside yeah ever (laughs) is it hard going from like a place like the cape and then learning about educating about what's around there and then going to florida where you have incredibly different set of ecosystems is that is that a learning curve at all or is it pretty easy it was a pretty big learning curve for me um there was a lot of birds down there that i knew (laughs) <laughs> but not in that plumage. Oh, yeah. So then, like, all of the birds look different, and someone would be like, oh, that's, like, this bird. And I'd be like, that's not what that looks like. And they're like, oh, no, it's just, like, the breeding plumage or whatever. And I'd be like, oh. So, or winter plumage, because that's when I was down there. Yeah. The, for those of you that are listening that don't know what we're talking about by plumage, uh, birds can molt and change their feathers based on the season. So during a breeding season, they have their breeding plumage, and it may be brighter colors, and they may have fancier feathers to try and attract a mate, whereas a non-breeding or a winter plumage may be more drab, browns, not as pretty because it can be energetically costly to have those bright, nice feathers. Um, and in the dead of winter, you're kind of struggling to survive. So you kind of got to learn your birds in all, you're not only learning one bird, you're learning a bird in all of their different life stages and like plumages. So that is definitely a skill to have. There's a qu- the reason I started this podcast is because I 
saw a flaw in the scientific community. I don't feel like we get the education out about like what it actually is to be a natural scientist. Like it's not on the National Geographic specials and NPR shows. I mean, NPR does a really good job of showing a lot of natural sciencey things, but like I feel like there's a lot of things that just kind of fly under the radar because it doesn't seem as glamorous. So I want to start this podcast to give people a kind of idea of the different things that are out there. Like some people may not know that environmental educators are a huge part of our field. Do you have anything that you kind of see as a flaw in our field or? Definitely getting across from the scientific community to just the general public. There is this huge gap. I guess gap. There's a huge gap between the two different communities where the very science minded people can't Mm -hmm. get their ideas across to the general public. It's almost like a language barrier because there's so much terminology that a scientist may use like plumage not everyone yeah. would know what that is um, yeah so there's like that whole gap and then as an educator you kind of have to be like oh i have to take this really scientific term mm-hmm. and somehow make it easy for a four-year-old mm-hmm. to understand so it's kind of being an educator you're bridging the gap between the science community and the general public that's awesome what are some of the different jobs that you've had throughout your career? Has it only ever been this one job or in volunteering with Connecticut Fish and Game? Or has there been other things you've done? So for volunteering, I did the Osprey banding, Purple Martin banding, mm-hmm. um, goose banding, duck banding. I've helped the bear biologists do some of their research. Um, what else? When I was actually in high school... I worked for the State Wildlife Division in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just an office seasonal. You know, I answered phones. I dealt with nuisance wildlife control operators, rehabbers. Um, so that kind of opened the door for me mm-hmm. into this field. Um, and then a couple years later, when I was old enough to work at state parks, I started at a nature center. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started education. And then I worked for a wildlife refuge in Connecticut, and I was a... I was an island keeper, mm-hmm. so I monitored islands. We did bird counts. We made sure the islands were okay. What was it like living on an island? Um, I actually lived on a boat. Oh. So um, we did not live on island. Our We lived on a houseboat that came up from Florida, mm-hmm. and it was docked. Luckily, it was docked at the town dock, so I was still <laughs> able to you know get off and lead a somewhat normal life, but then... You know, in the morning when we had to go monitor our islands, we would take a different boat out Mm -hmm. and we would go. Um, We usually stayed between like three or four islands. Um, And then one island had a lighthouse on it that was owned by a different organization, but they had a ferry that would come out. So one of my job responsibilities was to offer trail hikes to the people that would come onto the island and be like, hey, like, I'm going to go on this hike. Like, I'll talk about some of the birds we see, some of the plants we might see, or just, you know, the general history of the island. Yeah. Which is pretty cool, because it actually used to be a country club, and it's just this little tiny island in the middle of Long Island Sound. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, they had, like, a landing strip for planes and everything. And oh. Now it's just completely overgrown. <laughs> I didn't know that at all. When you're working with the animals in at the Nature Center, and you have been getting to know them, what is what's some of your favorite like experiences like just like getting up close with like 
the giant snakes you have that have to wrap around your entire body. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of, like, good moments. Um, you know, some of the animals, they bond to certain people, and they want to be able to trust you mm-hmm. before they kind of accept you mm-hmm. for being, like, around them. Um, but, you know, when you come in in the morning and the ferrets are all excited, and they're like, oh my god, someone's here. Or we have a bird that says good morning when you take the blankets off of his cage. Wait, and it can actually say good morning? Yes. What kind of bird is it? He's a cockatiel. Oh, okay. So I was talk. like, what is this? Oh, I actually, um, at the last nature, the nature center I worked at for two years, mm-hmm. we had a blue jay who could say words. What? Yeah. Blue jays can talk? Yeah, she would say good morning, cutie. If you were the first one in, she would always be like, good morning, cutie. And you'd I, just be like, how do they know? I, I don't know. I, I guess they know. can mimic things pretty well. Yeah, so she mimicked. Can't. It was also really funny. We had monk parakeets who she actually mimicked the monk parakeets. So, like, I had no idea. Like, I couldn't remember what a blue jay sounded like because all I heard was her, but she sounded like a monk parakeet. Yeah, and she was just a fraud and very confused. <laughs> yes. So, she was, she was a pretty rare case. It's um not common to see, like, a blue jay at a nature center. Right. But she was actually taken in by somebody as a baby who mm-hmm. didn't know that it was illegal to take in a baby mm-hmm. or a bird in general. Um. And when they found out it was illegal, they surrendered her, mm-hmm. but she was already imprinted, and they tried to do a soft release, which is when you would put the cage outside and open it up and let them leave on their own. Mm-hmm. However, she just would not leave, so she stayed, and we took her in at the nature center, and she lived a long and happy life. That's good. So she loved her cage. She, she really did. <laughs> That's awesome. She was a good bird. So we've talked about kind of when people have these exotic pets and kind of release them do you have any thoughts or recommendations if someone's like i would like a snake for a pet where are there safe places to get them that you know it's a reliable source or how do you know if you can handle having a snake as a pet so i always discourage people from getting exotic animals as pets Um, a lot of people don't realize that they have uh, quite a long lifespan i've personally had a corn snake and she has well into her 20s at this point i've had her almost my entire life you know we have a box turtle who was a rescue and she is pretty young still so she's got a long life ahead of her Mm -hmm. i have a russian tortoise who is like 10 (laughs) so got a long time with him i hope he's actually so i got him when he was pretty sick so he probably might live into his 60s um, at best but normally they'll live a lot longer than that so these things have like have to go in your will. Yeah, <laughs> and like a lot of people don't realize that, um, and they get them, and you know they're fun for you know two weeks, and then kids go to college or kids that they just get bored, and then they no longer want them, mm-hmm. or they don't realize how hard it is to take care of them because every these reptiles, you know, they're cold blooded, mm-hmm. so they have very specific heat requirements, very specific humidity requirements, um, very specific diets that need to be met. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot harder than you would think. And then even some of the exotic mammals, yeah. are uh, they're not easy to take care of. And um, sugar gliders are a great example. Um, what is it? I think they're called pocket pets, maybe. You might see them at, like, fairs or something. Yeah. They try to sell them as these, like, great, furry, cuddly animals. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. Um, yeah. It can take them forever to bond to you. And their requirements are so specific. Mm-hmm. And if you don't take care of them right they're not going to be healthy so um for people that do get exotic pets um i would never recommend pocket pals or i 
that might not be their names pocket mm-hmm. pets mm-hmm. um or pet stores okay i know um there are people that there's like um expos like reptile expos and stuff like that are those like breeders and yep so like those that? are generally breeders mm-hmm. um some breeders are not as reliable as others so really um, got to do your homework and yeah definitely kind of do your homework or if you do want a reptile adoption is mm-hmm. always a good case there's so many people trying to rehome their ball pythons and their turtles yeah so there are options when you were in florida did you ever see any of the because you always hear about how these pythons are getting out and it's like a huge issue for the ecosystem really that these snakes are they're invasive and mm-hmm. they pretty much thrive from what i've heard i've never seen one but did you ever see them or get exposed to that kind of thing when you're in florida um i never saw the the pythons um they were more down in the everglades and i was there quite a bit but i never saw one mm-hmm. um but on the island i was living at i saw a lot of the green iguanas um which are super invasive mm-hmm. and super big um, <laughs> they're, they're gigantic and also aggressive um, oh they're aggressive yeah they're very aggressive oh because you know, i feel like you always see like on like david attenborough you're like oh there's an iguana sitting there and they just seem like this like chill things that i'm just sit on this rock and this is my life and that's just kind of how i imagine iguanas no iguanas can be pretty aggressive um and they can be like six feet so they get pretty big it's taller than me (laughs) yeah i saw some pretty large ones in florida and you know as they get bigger they're not as high up in the trees Mm -hmm. and a lot of people think that they're like eating I don't know, like live animals, which just isn't true. They eat plants, mm-hmm. which is just as bad. They're eating all the native plants and then taking away food for the actual native animals. But um, then we also had the invasive lizards and the invasive frogs. So pretty much everything in Florida is invasive, which is um, unfortunate. <laughs> That's hard. But, you know, a lot of... Oh, so actually here, the red-eared sliders, not here, Connecticut. Okay. Also up here. In Connecticut, we have the red-eared sliders, What's which... That? They're a type of turtle. Okay. And a lot of people buy them because when they're babies, you know, they're about the size of a quarter. Cute. And, yeah, they're they're cute. But then they get pretty large. I can't remember their their actual size, but, you know, they're about dinner plate sized, I would say. It's a big turtle. Um, And, you know, they need a massive tank. And aquatic turtles, you know, they're gross. Mm -hmm. They take a lot of care. So people release them into the waters. Well, they were they adapted they were able to survive here and there's actually a herpetologist in connecticut who recently found out that they can they can uh, reproduce here oh so the nest the eggs are establishing yep holy cow yeah do you know like what do you do at that point once you have an established invasive like is there anything we can do Uh, i'm not too sure about the turtles Mm -hmm. um i know there's probably people who are working on it. Um, they're not supposed to be sold as pets mm, anymore. Okay. Does that mean they're not? Mm-hmm. Probably not. I feel like just kind of you hear about invasives all the time. In like in Maine, we have a lot of insects that are invasive and plants and that kind of thing. I just feel like it's just going to be a bigger part of our field is working with invasives. Because, I mean, it's pretty big now, but I feel like, I mean, how do you even cope with that kind of thing? I mean, there's definitely... You know, I feel like there just needs to be more research done about it because not every species is easy to get rid of. Right. Like, even plants, like some plants you can pull, but chances are they're still going to grow back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you can... Somewhere they introduced another species 
to get rid of an invasive species within that species. Australia, they did it with cane toads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in Australia, there was this grub that was, uh, I think it was like eating sugar maybe? I could be completely wrong. And they introduced a cane toad that is supposed to eat these grubs. Well, it was the wrong type of grub that they rele- that they thought these cane toads were going to eat. So they released the cane toad and they were like, um this isn't working because the life cycles didn't add up like i don't know if the homework was just wasn't done yeah i I don't know how that really all works yeah um i know there's a movie called cane toad we had to watch it in invasive species class i love cane toads they're huge they're so cute but yeah it's or in this invasive species class we talked about there are these crazy ants on christmas island easter island they have like cyanide in them and they attack the little crabs. And so there's usually this like mass crab migration, but that's been declining because these ants can like predate on them because, you know, they just like spray some poison in them. And animals are insane. They are. It's so cool. I know. And I feel like, you know, as far as climate change goes, as the climate's changing, we're probably going to see more invasive species yeah. as their range expands and then probably less of some of the native species as their mm-hmm. range. So, like, one thing that I know, I just think about sometimes is at what point, you know, with climate change and the, the world's changing, at what point is that going to become the new native, you know? These animals can live in this place and other animals can't. At what point do we stop trying to stop this invasive to protect a native species and just be like, well, this is the new normal. This is the mess we made. That I don't know. I'm sure some scientist knows. <laughs> yeah. Someone else that's <laughs> not, not, not us. Not me. <laughs> For people... Thinking about getting into wildlife or natural science or environmental education or animal husbandry, do you have any advice for getting into it? I would say do internships. Mm-hmm. Find out what you're passionate about, what makes you happy. Um, for me, education makes me happy. Teaching kids, seeing them get excited about things, that's something that makes me happy. So when I'm passionate about what I'm doing, it's going to make whoever I'm teaching, whoever I'm working with more passionate about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So find something that you're passionate about and pursue it. And it's totally okay um, if you're, say, you're a freshman in college right now and you're listening to this and you're like, I have no idea what I'm passionate about. Like, that is super okay. This is the perfect time to figure it out. I didn't, uh, my thing is seabirds. Like, friggin' love seabirds. And I had no idea. I'd never dealt with them before my freshman year. Um, and I heard a presentation and I was like, I'm gonna do that. So definitely if you're not sure what your thing is yet that it's completely okay actually you probably don't even know this but when i applied for colleges i didn't apply to go to wildlife what my original plan wasn't to take any wildlife courses i wanted to go to school to do uh, equine science <laughs> did not know that <laughs> no so, yeah, so when i was i started looking at colleges my junior year of high school and i was like i'm gonna go for equine science i was either gonna do um kind of like rehab therapy for horses Hmm. or I was gonna be an equine vet and then I started applying for colleges and I was all ready and then I was like you know what never mind I'm gonna go and do wildlife (laughs) what made you change your mind anything in particular I don't know like I loved horses but then I was sitting there and I was like is this is this really what's gonna make me happy like is this what I see myself doing for the rest of my life and Mm. then I was like no this Mm. isn't um it was honestly, you know, growing up with a mom as a biologist, growing up with all of the biologists she worked with, mm-hmm. I guess they were they were really the reason that I went into this field. 
Um, all of them are my role models, the people that I look up to. And I actually, <laughs> when I originally went to college, I was like, I want to be just like a, our bear biologist. <laughs> um, so when I went into college, I did want to be a fur bear biologist. Oh, wow. And then as soon as I worked at the nature center after my freshman year of college, I was like, you know what? Education is for me. That's what I'm going to do. That's awesome. So I did change <laughs> my plans a lot. Yeah. And I feel like that you hear that so often in wildlifers and natural sciences, you kind of, you, you may go in with this goal, but as you try things and really figure yourself out, that's going to change and just become this path. So when I was in my undergrad, I just tried everything because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and it kind of, not to sound cliche, but it kind of chooses you. You just kind of fall into it and you're like, oh, I'm good at this. Yeah. Because I've seen you work with kids and like, I work a lot better with seabirds because I can yell at them back and you're a lot more patient with kids. It's true. I always think it's easier to fall into teaching Mm -hmm. than to go into teaching like that's what I want to do. How come? Um, Teaching you have to be so flexible. Mm -hmm. You are going to walk into a class and your class, you know, they might they might all be having a bad day on the same exact day mm-hmm. or if you're having a bad day something it's it's gonna go wrong and you have to be able to change maybe the activity you planned isn't going well mm-hmm. something happened you can't do it you have to be able to like change what you want to do on the spot like you can't go in with the mindset of like this is my plan I have to stick to this exactly mm-hmm. you have to be able to be flexible you have to think on your feet um, and then you also have to know like how to deal with a bunch of different behavior problems, mm-hmm. um, which was definitely a learning curve when I started teaching more classes, because you know you don't always know these kids, right. and all of kid all of the kids have different needs, mm-hmm. and you really have to learn how to deal with all of the behavior problems you might run into. That it just impresses me because not only are you a teacher, but like now you're also bringing animals into this thing. So not only do you have to be able to read this the classroom and the individual kids, but you also have to read this animal and be like is this animal ready for this? Do they want to be here? Are they being, are they handling it well? So that's another thing you have to learn. You have to be able to tell when your animal is unhappy, when Mm -hmm. something is wrong. Um, We do, in the morning when we check on our animals, you know, we want to make sure, like, is this animal good to go on programs today? Mm -hmm. And if we think, you know, they're not feeling great, they're having an off day, maybe they've gone out already a bunch this week, Mm -hmm. we're going to take them off program, give Mm -hmm. them some time to relax, because the last thing you want to do is stress out an animal. And I think that just, that what you said is very important just to show that it's not like, well, we're going on a program today and that's it. This is your job, animal. Like, you read the animal and you're like, you know, maybe he doesn't want to be with a bunch of kids today and that you respect that. I think that's so important and shows that you're good at your job. Yeah, there's even moments where you get to a class and you bring your animal out and, you know, they're going to let you know that they're maybe not feeling good. Mm -hmm. They might be a little uncomfortable, you know, especially if the kids are a really rowdy group. So you have to kind of know, like, you can feel when a snake is kind of uncomfortable. Maybe Mm -hmm. they're going to move around a little different. Or um, some of the mammals, they might squirm a little bit more. And Mm -hmm. if that is the case, then, you know, I don't have to let the kids touch him. I can leave the animal in their containers. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really just depends yeah so it is it's a lot of care in the animals you know you want to make sure that they're they're comfortable um with you because if they're comfortable with you they're definitely gonna behave better Mm -hmm. that makes sense how big do you think networking is in this field it is huge it is definitely a lot of who you know Mm -hmm. um you know a lot of this is a very competitive field yeah and a lot of the people in the field have been working at this a long time Mm mm-hmm 
Um, and there aren't a lot of jobs, unfortunately, and mm-hmm. hopefully that'll change in the future. But, you know, a lot of these biologists, like, they know who they want to hire as their seasonals. Yeah. And so you want to have a competitive resume. You want to get out and volunteer. You want to get internships. And you just have to keep mm-hmm. trying. Like, when Emily and I first met and, like, actually, like, started talking, um, <laughs> funnily enough, we uh, we became friends at a party. And we literally <laughs> just talked all night about just our different wildlife experiences. And I was like, this is it. This girl is stuck with me for life. But I just remember being so impressed because you've been doing this since you were, like, I thought, I, I mean, I started this in high school, and I was like, well, I'm getting super early. This is great. And I'm like, oh, this this girl is a professional, even though we're only, like, 20 years old. Yeah, definitely having a mom as a biologist, mm-hmm. um, you know, helped. Mm-hmm. Because she always brought me around the office, so I kind of, I grew up there. So, you know, every time biologists had something to do, I'd be like, hey, mm-hmm. I'm not doing anything. Right. Do you need me? And some people could definitely see that as like well your mom was a biologist but I feel like you didn't have to put yourself out there to go and see other biologists to try and get those experiences you could have just like hung out in the office and been like I'm a doodle on my phone today but you were like this interests me I'm gonna go push it one step further yeah so funny enough I'm going back to you know what I literally do for a career now um my mom used to do educational programs we would go to zoos aquariums uh state parks Mm -hmm. you know she also went to schools and did programs Mm -hmm. and i would actually go with her (laughs) and it was like one of my favorite things to do and here's little like seven-year-old me like teaching people about like bear scat that's awesome so um i was literally like born into this field and Mm -hmm. i just always had a passion for it so kept it going that's great yeah well, thank you for sitting down. Um, I definitely forced Emily into this. She, she did. This was very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything you want to plug? Any programs or places that you think are doing very well? Um, in this field or no just check out your local nature centers if they do programs go in volunteer mm-hmm. volunteer at your local zoo if you have any zoos in your state mm-hmm. awesome Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and that you continue to make natural science part of your daily conversation. Have a great day, guys. All right, guys. So for our news articles of the week, there are two articles that I'm going to use. They're kind of older, but Emily and I kind of touched on both the cane toad and the yellow crazy ant during the episode. And I really just wanted to take the time to talk about these two situations and give the right information on these two invasive species just because it really is important for people to understand that invasive species are real and they're a huge problem. So we're going to get into those articles right now. So the first article I'm going to talk about is an ABC news article on the yellow crazy ant. So these are an ant that can take over an animal and then they spray acid in their eyes. I think I misspoke when I was speaking originally about this but they will spray an acid into an animal's eyes which kind of debilitates it so they can take it over. There's an island off the coast of Australia called Christmas Island that has these red crabs that are unique to the island and they have this giant migration um, which seeds thousands of these animals march from the rainforest to the ocean and these yellow crazy ants were introduced I think it was in the 20th century yeah so they arrived at Christmas Island and just started taking over. And this has resulted in the deaths of 
thousands and thousands of crabs, which led officials to worry that these crabs would become extinct because of the crazy ants, which wasn't really that far-fetched of a concern because the island's populations of endemic blue-tailed skinks had already been on the brink of extinction due to similar pressures. The next article that I want to talk about is the article on the cane toad biocontrol situation in Australia. I'm primarily referencing an older National Geographic article on the cane toad because to get the whole story kind of took a lot of digging, but essentially in around 1935, the Australian cane sugarcane industry wasn't doing very well because of a cane beetle and scientists thought that introducing this cane toad from Hawaii would be a great biocontrol as a way to remove the cane beetle so that it wouldn't be an issue anymore. However, there wasn't a lot of research done before introducing the cane toad. This was really early in the biocontrol days, and it took a little bit of digging to really find out why exactly the cane toad wasn't successful, but it seems like it was a combination of the beetles weren't active at the same time as the cane toad, so the cane toad never really came across the cane beetle, and it couldn't even feed on the larvae because the larvae were under the ground and they had offset breeding cycles, a bunch of things just kind of mixed together so that they introduced this cane toad and it didn't do what they had wanted it to. That wouldn't have been as big of an issue except for the fact that cane toads are extremely good at reproducing, so they kind of took over from where they are originally released. That, along with the fact that these toads are extremely poisonous to anything that tries to eat them, has made a pretty large problem in Australia. So it's harming a lot of native wildlife because they can't eat these animals and they're being outcompeted as well. So they're being poisoned, they're being outcompeted, and these toads are just absolutely thriving. So I just kind of wanted to touch on that so you guys could understand. I know I didn't fully cite it properly when I was talking in the podcast episode, so I just wanted to kind of revisit that. I'll put both of these articles linked in the description of the podcast so that if you guys are more interested, you can listen. But for now, that's all I have. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode and continue to make natural science part of your daily conversation. Thank you.